Ladies and gentlemen, it is your boy, Elgin Bailey, host of the Page Turners podcast, man, coming to you tonight with episode number 12. Um, We have a great, great broadcast in store for you guys tonight, man. It is a broadcast that is incredibly fitting in light of the current climate of Christendom. Uh, The Page Turners is a podcast where we pick a book for a particular session and we walk through the book. We, We read the book together. We unpack certain subjects and topics within the book and and apply those topics and and things to where we are as a way of learning together walking together through dialogue man Uh, i'm an avid bookhead i read tons of books as not too many things i would rather do than to sit with a good book man and uh i love to read Part of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is because I wanted to share that love of reading with other folk, but also to deal with books and topics that, uh, yeah, that are needed to be discussed uh, and to address these topics from a black perspective. So season one, we have decided to do Black Theology and Black Power by the late, great Dr. James Cone. This book was written in 1969. It was first published in 1969. Black Theology and Black Power provided the first systematic presentation of Black Theology, relating the militant struggle for liberation with the gospel message of salvation. James Cone laid out the foundation for an original interpretation of Christianity that retains its urgency and challenge today. No doubt about it, family. Man, if you have been paying attention to anything that has been taking place within Christendom the past past couple of days, man, you will notice... uh, Most of you who are familiar with Christendom, Christianity, will be very familiar with the name John MacArthur. John MacArthur is a, to say he's a huge deal within Christendom would be an understatement. But, and you hear this this loud truck go by, my apologies. He's a huge deal within Christendom. He is a large pastor, has a large following. I don't want to spend too much time, but he's a huge deal within Christendom, man. It's fair to call him the evangelical pope. Uh, He has tons of followings followers and and quote-unquote disciples within the reformed community. Uh, He's really big with 
expository preaching. Uh, yeah, and at one point in time, he was someone that I spent a lot of time listening to. Uh, he was someone that I held in high regard because of not only his uh, teaching style, but his preaching, his command, quote unquote, of scripture. Uh, and I think on some levels, on a deeper level, being able to examine it more and being honest, the fact that he was a white male with this command uh, that went completely polar opposite with I was used to coming from different backgrounds in the black church. There are many of us who have come out of reform teaching or quote unquote reform backgrounds uh, who gravitated towards reformed uh, teaching because of the quote unquote, we, what we thought was quote unquote rightness of it. Uh, the, 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 it was more straight word. It was, you know, it was the Bible without a bunch of hoopla and, 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 and things that we find in the black church. Uh, and there's a whole lot that goes with that. So he, he decided to stick his nose in, uh, the racial reconciliation, social justice discussion. And he put out a, uh, put out a, a blog post that was uh, very interesting. If you get some time, man, I, I encourage you to, you know, if you want to go look at it. But the point of all that was to say, his blog post, his statue within white evangelicalism has allowed him to make a blog post essentially uh, in one side of his mouth saying how uh, he marched with certain people during the civil rights movement, how he did this during the civil rights movement, did that during the civil rights movement. And then on the other side of the mouth saying how dangerous uh, the fight for social justice was to the actual gospel. And it's, it's been some backlash, it's been some, but not nearly the backlash that you would expect it to be, or let me say, it was the backlash that I expected to be. And I'm not going in depth with this. Uh, I'm paraphrasing a lot of this because that is not the topic of this particular podcast. I'm not here to talk about what he said, and what he didn't do, but I'm here to show and to share what um, the parallel between 1969 and 2018, how there is little to no progress as far as closing the gap between black Christians specifically the black church and white evangelicalism. We've seen the data, we've seen the polls, we know how many white evangelicals supported and continue to support 
our current president with all of his shenanigans and malarkey uh, that he is involved in and he continues to be involved in. We know there is a gulf there. Now, I have my own perspective on that gulf and closing that gulf. I don't believe that racial reconciliation uh, is something that we'll ever see. I, I, I just don't believe it because, not because it's something that uh, is made up or some sort of fantasy, but more importantly, because what would need to be given up in order to be reconciled back. Now, here's the thing about reconciliation. Reconciliation takes place and, and basically is rejoining something that was once together, but is now fractured, broken, or separated. I don't believe in reconciliation amongst races, in, particularly within the Christian sense, is because we were never together. We were never joined. There was, there was never a unified uh, church. Now, maybe in a spiritual sense, there's a unified church, but on a physical level, nah, player, that ain't what it is. That ain't what it's going to be. It, it, <laughs> I particularly am one who does not participate in that sort of Bigfoot, blue unicorn, uh, pie in the sky type of chasing and teaching. It's the same thing when it comes regards to equality and things along those lines. I just, I don't believe in those. My logic prevents me from seeing and gravitating towards those things. And I truly believe that the black church, black Christians, and black people should abandon should not put as much effort into seeking equality, which doesn't exist, which is a myth, reconciliation, and focus more on the acquisition of power. And truthfully, if there was to be any sort of a sort of reconciliation, that means that the playing fields would have to be somewhat equal. So those who are in power and hold the power of wealth and influence would have to give up some of that in order to be part of the repentance process in order for reconciliation to take place. There can't be any repentance, I mean, any reconciliation without repentance. It just can't. It, it doesn't work that way. We see it in scripture time after time, whenever there's reconciliation or the, the, the push and teaching for reconciliation, repentance was a key piece of that process. And it wasn't just a, a written apology, an announcement of an apology. That's not what actual repentance is. There's more to be given up. It is an actual changing, a, 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 a righting the wrong. And if we're going to actually have any sort of reconciliation, that has to be the case. But to be clear, two things. I don't believe that most or the majority needed of white evangelicals are in a position to actually reconcile. 
to do the things necessary. And I don't believe that there's enough black Christians who are willing to do what is necessary to get reconciliation. And for us to get reconciliation, that means we would have to stop seeking validation, that we would have to maximize the current separation and segregation that we are currently experiencing and focus on acquiring power, wealth, and influence of ourselves and using that to stabilize, build, and create strong socioeconomic infrastructures. But when we read this tonight, man, when we read this book tonight and begin in chapter three, titled The White Church and Black Power, we're going to see how far we have come while all these Negroes out here want to be singing Kumbaya and all this nonsense, and we have white evangelicals showing their hands on how they feel and what they really feel and being clear and upfront, I think it's time for black Christians to do with Maya Angelou, the great, late, great Maya Angelou stated. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. There's no reason why we don't believe these white evangelicals when they tell us that they ain't banging with us. We should believe them. We should believe them. So let's begin chapter three of Black Theology and Black Power by the late, great Dr. James Cone. And the book begins, let the church discover and identify itself with groups of people that suffer because of unjust situations who have no way of making themselves heard. The church should be the voice of those who have no one. The church must discover those groups and identify herself with them. Here is the modern way of the cross, the way of Christian responsibility. Emilio Castro. The meaning of black power and its relationship to Christianity has been the focal point of this discussion thus far. It has been argued that black power is the spirit of Christ himself in black-white dialogue, which makes possible the emancipation of blacks from self-hatred and frees whites from their racism. Through black power, blacks are becoming men of worth and whites are forced to confront them as human beings. There is no other spirit in American life so challenging as the spirit of black power. We see it affecting every major aspect of American life, economic, political, and social. In major white and black universities, its spirit is manifested in the demand for more emphasis on black studies. Black students have literally taken over some administration buildings in an effort to make white authorities recognize the importance of their demands. Excuse me. In politics, Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hampton have given the political implications of black power. Yo, family, if you haven't read Black Power by Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton, get that, get that, get that. And the text reads, for them, black power in politics means blacks controlling their political destiny by voting for black people and perhaps eventually forming a coalition with poor whites against middle class whites. For some others, it means black nationalism. Economically, it may mean boycotting or building stores for black people. Religiously or philosophically, it means an inner sense of freedom from the structures of white society, which builds its economy 
on the labor of poor blacks and whites. It means that the slave now knows that he is a man and thus resolves to make the enslaver recognize him. I contend that such a spirit is not merely compatible with Christianity. In America, in the later 20th century, it is Christianity. Some critics of this thesis may ask about the place of church in my analysis. It may appear that its role as an agent of God in the world has been overlooked. This leads us to an investigation of the biblical understanding of the church and its relationship to white denominational churches. Now, man, listen. I want y'all to understand that this is crucial, man. This information right here is very, very crucial. This investigation of the biblical understanding of the church and its relationship to white denominational churches. Many of y'all Christians, I love y'all to death and have a, a ton of respect for you guys, but you have made the church synonymous with Christ when they are two completely, entirely different things, man. But if I tell you that I don't go to church and I don't participate in, in church, the institution of church, your first thought, more than likely if you are a church goer, is that my relationship with Christ is somehow not as good as yours. And that may not be what y'all say, but that's definitely the underlying implications of the statements that come out of your mouth. In this particular chapter three, going into this section right now, that is titled, What is the Church? It's crucial, man. I think this information that we're about to dig into, man, is foundational. Foundational to your faith as a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, it's foundational for you to get a under, better understanding of what the Bible says the church is. Because I know some of you non-church, non-Christian folk can judge the church rather harshly because you also view the church and Jesus as one. But let me dig in the text. The section states, or rather it's titled, What is the Church? What is the church in its relationship to Christ and black power? The church is that people called into being by the power and love of God to share in his revolutionary activity for the liberation of man. Let me tell you, let me read it again. The church is that people called into being by the power and love of God to share in his revolutionary activity for the liberation of man. Pay attention, fam, please. Methodically, the interrelationship of God, man, and the world is presented in the Genesis picture of the man and woman in the garden. Man was created to share in God's cre creative, revolutionary activity in the world. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. But through sin, man rejects his proper activity and destiny. He wants to be God, the creator of his destiny. This is the essence of sin. Every man's to be desire to become like God. But in his passion to become superhuman, man becomes subhuman. Estranged from the source of his being, threatening and threatened by his neighbor, 
transforming a situation destined for intimate human fellowship into a spider web of con conspiracy and violence. <laughs> God, however, will not permit man thus to become less than a divine intention for him. God's not going to let you become something that he didn't intend you to. In this context is what Dr. Cohen is saying. He therefore undertakes a course of not so gentle persuasions for liberation and restoration of his, cre his creatures. The call of Abraham was the beginning of this revolutionary activity on behalf of man's liberation from his own sinful pride. This was followed by the Exodus, the most significant revelatory act in the Old Testament, which demonstrated God's purpose for man. God showed, therefore, that he was the Lord of history, that he will for man, his will for man is not to be thwarted by other human wills. And when Pharaoh said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord is righteous and I and my people are wicked. Exodus 9.27, he was saying that even he recognized the righteousness of God in contrast to the wickedness of men. The history of Israel is a history of God's election of special oppressed people to share in his creative involvement in the world on behalf of man. The call of this people as Sinai into a covenant relationship for a special task may be said to be the beginning of the church. In the Old Testament, Israel often refers to herself as Quahal, the assembly or people of God. Israel is called into being as a people of a covenant in which Yahweh promises to be their God and they his people. Israel's task is to be a partner in God's revolutionary activity and thus to be an example to the whole world of what God intends for all men. By choosing Israel, the oppressed people among the nations, God reveals that his concern is not for the strong, but for the weak, not for the enslaver, but for the slave, not for whites, but for blacks. To express the goal of her striving, Israel spoke of the day of the Lord and King of God, in which God would vindicate his people from oppression and the rule of his righteousness would be recognized by all. This will be the day when the lion would lie down with the lamb and men would beat their swords into plowshares. <laughs> Here we go, man. Pay attention. Stay with me, family. In the New Testament, the coming of God in Christ means that the kingdom of God expected in the Old Testament is now realized in Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord has come in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This day is no longer future, but present in the man, Jesus. In him is an embodied God's kingdom in which men are liberated. He, as Paul says, the new Adam, who has done for man what man cannot do for himself. <laughs> Lord have mercy. His death and resurrection mean that the decisive battle has been fought and won, and man no longer has to be a slave through principalities and powers. Excuse me. Here we go, man. Here we go. Here we go. With him also comes a new people which the New Testament calls the Ecclesia. Like the people of old Israel, they are called into being by God himself to be his agent in this world until Christ's second coming. Like old Israel, they are all oppressed people and created to cooperate in God's liberation of all men. Unlike old Israel, 
Their membership is not limited by ethnic or political boundaries, but includes all who respond in faith to the redemptive act of God in Christ with a willingness to share in God's creative activity in the world. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Unlike old Israel, they do not look forward to the coming of the kingdom, but know that in Christ, God's kingdom has already come and their very existence is a manifestation of it. The church merely waits for its full consummation in Christ's second coming. Therefore, its sole purpose for being is to be a visible manifestation of God's works in the affairs of men. This is to tell you what the church should be doing, what the church's mission statement is. The church merely waits for its full consummation in Christ's second coming. Therefore, its sole purpose for being is to be a vital, a visible, sorry, manifestation of God's work in the affairs of men. The church then consists of people who have been seized by the Holy Spirit and who have the determination to live as if all depends on God. It has no will of its own, only God's will. It has no duty of its own, only God's duty. Its existence is grounded in God. You notice there was a, a, a phrase that was missing there. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? It never once pointed towards a building as the church. He's made it clear so far that the church is the people. Man, y'all gonna get this, get this, get this, get this. And the text reads, I gotta read that one more time. The church then consists of people who have been seized by the Holy Spirit and who have the different determination to live as if all depends on God. It has no will of its own, only God's will. It has no duty of its own, only God's duty. Its existence is grounded in God. The church of Christ is not bounded by standards of race, class, or occupation. It is not a building or an institution. It is not determined by bishops, priests, ministers, as these terms are used by their contemporary sense. Rather, the church is God's suffering people. It is that grouping of men who take seriously the words of God. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Matthew 5.33 The call of God constitutes the church, and it is a call to suffering. As Bonhoeffer put it, Bonhoeffer, sorry, put it Man is challenged to participate in the sufferings of God at the hands of a godless world. He must plunge himself into the life of a godless world without attempting to gloss over its ungodliness with a veneer of religion or trying to transfigure it. <laughs> to be a Christian does not mean to be religious in any particular way. To cultivate some particular form of sacred, yeah, aestheticism, sorry. But to be a man, it is not some religious act which makes a Christian what he is, but participation in the suffering of God in the life of the world. 
It's not some religious act. It's not your grasp on a particular doctrine. It's not your particular denomination. It is the participation in the suffering of God in the life of the world. The text reads, where Christ is, there is the church. Christ is to be found, as always, where men are enslaved and trampled on the foot. Christ is found suffering with the suffering. Christ is in the ghetto. There also is his church. The church is not defined by those who faithfully attend and participate in 11 a.m. Sunday worship. As Harvey Cox says, the insistence by the reformers that the church was where the world is rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered will simply not do today. It may have been fine for distinguishing orthodoxy from heresy, but it is a worthless as a vehicle against modern racism. We must therefore be reminded that Christ was not crucified on an altar between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. He is not in our peaceful, quiet, comfortable suburban churches, but in the ghetto fighting the racism of churchy white people. And we're going to stop right there. Because that was some fire right there, man. I know a lot of y'all, man. A lot of y'all believe that, you know, uh, I'm trying to reach a pen while I do this. My apologies. A lot of y'all believe that that building that y'all go to every Sunday that building that you, you know, go to every Wednesday night, that building that has 1,900 different ministries is the church. But the church is the believers who make up and participate in that building. Who create, it's the church is the ecclesia, the actual people. So whether you are at Second, Third Baptist 19th Kojic, whatever the case may be, or you and three other believers are sitting in your living room watching the football game, eating hot wings. Church. Church. Church, man. I thank you guys for tuning in, man, tonight to another episode of the Page Turners. We are currently in chapter three of this wonderful book, Black Theology and Black Power by the late, great Dr. James H. Cone. I appreciate you guys, man. Keep standing, keep fighting, keep speaking truth. Till next time.